what if you could never buy meat at the grocery store again? What would you do? Where would you go to find a protein source? Well, in today's episode, we are going to take a deep dive into this idea of what it takes to grow an entire year's worth of meat on your own. I'll share exactly how we have learned to make this happen on our homestead over the years. It's been a process and how you can do it too, even if you don't live on hundreds of acres. You're listening to the Old Fashioned On Purpose podcast, where ambitious people master the art of returning to their roots. Have you found yourself disenchanted with society or wishing you could opt out of the rat race? Perhaps you're craving a life that's meaningful and tangible, a life where you can create and produce instead of merely consume. I'm Jill Winger, best-selling author and longtime homesteader. Over the last 10 years, I've helped thousands of families create more connection, grow amazing organic food, and find the ultimate fulfillment through an old-fashioned lifestyle. And I can do the same for you. Now, on to our episode. So I think it's only fitting we start this season off with protein. If you ask my kids, Uh, I think they hear me say probably 20 times a day, have you had enough protein? Are you eating protein? No, you can't have rice and potatoes for lunch. You need to have some sort of protein. This has protein, that has protein. We talk about protein a lot. It's a big deal. Um, But I wanted to let it be the kind of the first focus of this series, this brand new season, where we are really exploring what it takes to be more self-reliant. How do we become more self-sufficient? Not in the, I'm going to go become a hermit and hide in the mountains sort of self-sufficiency, although that's your jam, go for it. But rather, how can we take some of these concepts that are going to actually improve our everyday quality of life, but also set us up for a little bit more security in the event of some sort of crazy thing? Because after the last year, I feel like, anything is possible. (laughs) So it's all about being prepared, not in a scary sense, not in an alarmist sense, but more in a happy sort of independence. So like I explained in the introduction of this season, uh, the last episode, we're just going to be focusing on a different topic each episode. Today is protein. Next week or next episode is going to be eggs and dairy. We have guests coming on to talk about off-grid power and water and heat and community. It's going to be good. I'm really excited. But let's just roll right into this whole meat topic. Um, Meat, I would say for most homesteaders, unless you're vegetarian, and if you are, you're probably not going to get a whole lot of out of this episode. So my apologies. But for those of us who do consume meat, uh, this is a really big deal because obviously protein is important. And if you live in a place like I do, that isn't exactly tropical, <laughs> you know, I have a lot easier time growing meat than I do vegetables. And I would say any of the native cultures who lived out here on the prairies where we live now probably followed in the same suit. I would say their diet was heavily meat, not so much on the greens and the vegetation, maybe a little bit, but you know, it's a, it's a big part of a lot of homesteaders focus and food production plans is the beef, the pork, the chicken, the lamb, the rabbit, uh, whatever that may be. Now during COVID last year, we all know meat was a pretty big deal, right? I think probably most people were impacted 
by the meat shortages at the grocery store, you know, the signs on the butcher cases that you can only buy one package of beef at a time, or they were completely stripped bare. Uh, the slaughterhouses were shut down due to the fear of workers becoming sick. Um, I, I just still think back to the news reports of all the animals being slaughtered in mass because there was no one to process them. And I just, it still makes me completely sick to my stomach. I just like, can't even fully think about it. It just, I just can't even, I can't even wrap my mind around it. Um, a definite failure all the way around in the commercial meat industry. And that is a problem because I feel like it, it really underscored that some of these systems that we thought were really stable and weren't fail proof are not. And so that's why, um, I have been more determined than ever the last year. I mean, we were already doing pretty darn good with our meat production. It's something we've spent a lot of time working towards, but even more so, how can we be more secure and stable in our meat and, and plan ahead better and have um, a little more strategy and also maybe produce meat for people around us? Because not everyone can have beef cattle. I, I know that, but how could we produce little bits of extra here and there to help those in our community? So I'm going to share with you how we have gotten to this point on our homestead of raising basically all of our meat for a year. I will say that I, I don't buy meat at the grocery store really hardly ever. Like sometimes I buy pepperoni for pizzas. What else do I buy? Sometimes I'll buy some uncured uh, beef hot dogs for barbecues. And every so often, I really kind of hate doing this, but I still do it sometimes. When I go to Costco, I'll pick up a package of organic chicken breasts because there are just some recipes, like some of my make-aheads that need a little more chicken breast. And I have a lot of mixed feelings about this because I feel like, you know, we're so used to as a culture eating loads of chicken breast. And I'm like, y'all, there's a whole other bunch of the chicken that we forget about. And when you're on a homestead, um, you know, you have whole chickens, you don't raise chicken breasts, you raise whole chickens. <laughs> and so you get really good at learning how to use all the parts, but every so often, some of my quick get it on the table meals, need a little bit more chicken breast. So I'm still compromising there a little bit. Some of you may be horrified. Some of you may feel better that I said that. Whatever you want to feel about, that's cool. But that's what I do. So anyway, but other than that, I really buy no meat at the grocery store. No pork. I do not buy whole chickens or any other part of chickens. And I don't buy breasts that often. And no beef. I haven't bought a package of beef at the store in a very long time. And it feels really good because we were basically immune to the issues that happened last year. And we were also able to provide other people with meat who were not already set up to have it on their homestead. So it's a great feeling. And I want more people to have this feeling of meat production. Now, I'm not going to go into the ethics slash emotions of meat production in this episode, because I have covered that in previous podcasts. So I have thoughts on what it feels like to butcher an animal the emotions that arise, all that stuff is on a different episode. I will try to remember to drop that link in the show notes. Uh, but today I really just want to focus on the mechanics and the nitty gritty of growing some meat. All right. So first things first, if you are wanting to produce more food of any kind, but especially meat, you got to have some freezer space. Now I realize at this point in time, that is a easier said than done command because freezers are sold out because everyone else is understanding the importance of having a supply of food. So I know freezers are hard to find. Um, 
you they may be back ordered at places like Home Depot or Lowe's. So I would say get on a list somewhere, a waiting list if you're not already. Check your local garage sale groups. They go like hotcakes when somebody posts a used freezer, but it's still worth checking. I would say a freezer, even if your budget is small and you're pinching pennies, it's a wonderful investment. Whether you're an official homesteader or you're just someone who likes a little bit more preparedness because it's going to save you a lot of money in the long run when you can buy in bulk. Even if it's just two of you, even if just you and your spouse, or maybe you're alone and you don't, you're just living, you know, one person to feed, buying in bulk is still going to save you so much money. And every time I see someone like who I know or, or talking to people and I'm like, I just, you know, buy, go buy one thing at a time or one package at a time because I don't have a freezer and I don't like to store food. I'm like, oh man, you don't have to be full on food storage, you know, have an entire room of buckets or anything, but just a, a bigger freezer or a small chest freezer or something is going to save you a lot of cash. So it's a great investment. I do realize that a freezer is not off grid. So if there is power outages, we do have that consideration. We'll talk about that a little bit more in future episodes, um, you know, generators or things like that to, to power a freezer in the event that the grid were to have issues. But still, as long as you're hooked to the grid, a freezer is really wise. And you really can't start butchering your own meats without a freezer. We have traditionally had upright freezers. I know there's a lot of debate some people swear by chest freezers for better uh, temperature, uh, what do you call it, maintenance, maintaining, whatever. You know what I mean? I don't know. I don't love chest freezers as much because no matter how disciplined I tell myself I'm going to be every year, I don't follow through and it turns into a disaster where I'm like literally waist deep, head first into the freezer trying to find things and I lose stuff in the freezer and it's just not not a great fit for my personality type. So Uprights are a little easier to keep organized and to find things in, although they can still get messy. So we have uprights. We recently, um, some of you who follow me on YouTube saw the video. We had a custom freezer built for us. I don't think it would have made sense for us to do that up until this point. But the reason we did it this year is because we've started selling beef, like commercially. We needed a lot of freezer space to hold a lot of beef. Um, and we found a company that takes old commercial freezers and basically cuts them apart and repurposes the panels. So it was a little cheaper. I won't go into the whole fiasco. The company we used was not fabulous. And it was a nightmare of a process because they weren't great with communication or really doing high quality work was not their specialty. So we had some regrets with the choice of contractor we used. But all in all, if you can find that is an option. Maybe if you're planning on butchering a lot of meat for your homestead and you have space, that could work for you as some sort of custom freezer if you have someone who's really good at what they do. But up up till this year, we've had just chest, or no, excuse me, upright freezers. They've worked great. Let's start with beef because, well, I feel like it. And beef are my favorite. <laughs> um, we definitely raise all our own beef. Like I said, we don't buy any beef at the grocery store. We've been doing that for a number of years. And I remember when we first started homesteading, I was really intimidated at the thought of raising a beef. I just thought, man, this is, this is just feels hard. It feels like I'm going to miss something or mess something up. And looking back now, it's kind of funny because I would say raising beef is one of the simplest 
meat animals, uh, especially if you have pasture space. You just basically stick them on the pasture, feed a little hay in the winter, and it's pretty low maintenance. So it's fun to say I produced, you know, thousands of pounds of beef on my homestead this year, but in reality, I just basically let them graze. It's not a whole lot of hands-on work for me, so it's pretty easy. Our very first home-raised beef was a Jersey steer. A neighbor down the road had, I think it was a, it was probably from their milk cow, a Jersey calf. We bought it for, I don't know, four or 500 bucks. It was decent sized and brought it home and fed it for a while and then butchered it ourselves. It was great meat. Um, I mean, jerseys aren't going to be, I mean, it was still pretty good. I think ours wasn't as tender that first go around because we didn't understand the importance of letting meat age. Now we do, right? So you want to let your beef sides age or hang in a cool place for 14 to 21 days, ideally. And that just helps the meat fibers to start to break down. So our first beef we raised wasn't as tender as it could have been because we didn't hang it, but it was still really good. And so you could, you can butcher milk cow calves. You can butcher all different breeds. It doesn't have to be an Angus. It doesn't have to be a official brief beef breed. The milk cow breeds will have yellowish fat sometimes because of the beta carotene that's naturally occurring. Um, and sometimes, well, at least what I've heard is in the commercial beef industries, that's not as desirable because it's not as common. But there's nothing wrong with it. Like, it doesn't mean it's inferior or it tastes bad or it's gamey. Like, none of that. It's just a different color. So I have zero issue with that whatsoever. Um, as of now, we've, we've butchered some different milk cow calves over the years. But as we kind of started to figure out our rhythm, we got into Herefords, which is what we have now. And Herefords, in case you're not familiar, they're the classic red cow with the white face. And they're usually, sometimes they're kind of curly and fluffy looking. And why we did Herefords? Well, a couple of reasons. They're a great beef breed. They are gentle, er, I mean, there still can be mean ones, but a little bit quieter, a little bit more chill than an Angus. Sometimes Angus can be a little more flighty and uh, punchy. So a little calmer. Um, historically, in our part of Wyoming, I believe our the town next to us was the first the, one of the ranches there was brought in the first Herefords to the state. So it's kind of a cool heritage in our area, and a lot of ranchers here still have Herefords. So it just kind of made sense. So we now raise and eat Hereford, whether it's personal or for what we sell, and it's great beef. And people are like, "Oh, is it Angus?" And I'm like, "No, I mean, really, the Angus beef is great." But I kind of feel like you know, Angus has been marketed as the beef breed, but there's a lot of other really great beef breeds out there. So you don't have to be pigeonholed into only black Angus. And I hope that doesn't offend anyone who raises black Angus. They're great cattle. I have nothing against them, but there's other options out there too. You can raise and butcher both, or rather I say either a steer or a heifer. A steer is a castrated male calf and a heifer is a female. Generally, people will, I would say more, most people will pick a steer to raise, um, because they're castrated, they're going to, they're going to have more, uh, of their energy go towards putting on muscle mass, right? Heifers can still be wonderful eating, but a lot of people will save a heifer for breeding purposes. So you don't have to do that. But like for us, we, with our commercial herd, we generally keep our heifer calves or we sell them for someone else to use as breeding animals. And then we just keep our steers and raise those out and feed them and then eventually butcher them. 
if you're just planning on raising beef for your family, one animal per year, one steer per year is more than enough. Now, I know sometimes people will split animals and, you know, go halvesies or, you know, and that's fine. I personally don't mind having an entire beef in, in the freezer. If you have room, it will fit into a single upright freezer. Um, do you guys remember, I think it was an I Love Lucy episode where she got a bunch of beef and she didn't know how much it was. And they were like jamming it everywhere and trying to make it fit. It was just like one of those classic episodes. I always have those images when we bring home beef from the butcher and are trying to fit it in the freezer. But I feel like one steer a year per, per family is a great option. I feel like it's a great amount. It's, it's, a, it's a lot. If you've never purchased beef in bulk, you're going to be like, oh my gosh, a little bit stressed when you get that first load home from the butcher. But it's, I think it's great for a family of four or five, six, you're going to be golden and have a little bit left over by the time you butcher again the following year. How much land do you need? This is a golden question. And it depends. It depends um, on where you live and what type of grass you have. Um, where, where I'm from in Northern Idaho, for example, it's wonderfully lush, beautiful grass. And an acre or two is going to get you pretty darn far into the feeding cycle of an animal. Now compare that to Wyoming here on the prairie. We have a different type of grass. We have a lot drier climate. An acre for a steer isn't going to get as much bang for its buck. I'm going to have to be feeding more hay. I would say most homesteads, unless you have a giant homestead, most homesteads are going to have to feed hay to their cattle at least for a couple months of the, out of the year, just because it's when it's winter and the grass is dormant, things aren't growing. Sometimes there's enough left over out there, but sometimes usually not. So we still feed hay to all of our animals, our milk cows and our horses and our beef cattle, starting usually about October and going till about March. They have to be on hay unless they're out in our big, big, big pastures that we lease for our big herd. Um, sometimes people get I would say upset slash confused over when I say we have grass-fed beef. And they're like, no, it, yours isn't grass-fed because you're feeding hay. I had, I had someone on Facebook just furious at me the other day because I said we had grass-fed beef. And she's like, you're feeding them hay. That is not grass-fed beef. So let me just clarify, hay is dried grass. So it is still a grass-fed animal. If you're shooting for a grass-fed animal and you're feeding hay, that's perfectly legal. You do not have to worry about that. Even alfalfa, alfalfa is a type of hay that's a legume, right? A lot of protein in alfalfa. It'll um, give your animals a little bit faster growth sometimes. Alfalfa is what we feed to our milk cows because it helps their milk production and their body condition. But alfalfa, you can feed it that to a cow and it's still considered grass-fed. When we get out of the grass-fed realm is when we start to feed grain, or corn, or something like that. And some people do. Some people like to finish on corn or finish on grain. It's a hotly debated topic. Um, sometimes when I post our beef for sale locally and I say it's grass-fed and grass-finished, I'll have some guys will get on there and be a little bit uh, grouchy and rude about how grass-fed beef tastes like garbage and it's tough and it's gamey. And it's really not true. It depends on how it's raised. Grass-fed beef can be extremely tender very well marbled and have fantastic flavor. So 
depends on house raised, but we choose not to feed grain to ours for a lot of reasons. And there is a past podcast episode that explains the difference and why we've chosen that. That's a choice you get to make. So you want to feed corn or sweet feed or whatever you have to your critters, you can, but for us, it's easier. And I think it produces a superior product, in my opinion, to go grass all the way through. Okay, so how much meat will you get from a steer? And that's the that's the, the magic question, right? And it depends a little bit, of course, but general rule of thumb. Let's say you start with a 1,200-pound steer, then you're going to probably end up with around a 750-pound carcass by the time, you know, you cut off the stuff that you're not going to eat, right? And then roughly, you'll end up with about 65% of the carcass weight, or roughly about 490 pounds of beef. And I got those numbers from, um, I'll see if I can find the link. It was a extension office steer breakdown. So you can see a 1,200-pound steer is going to give you about roughly 500 pounds of meat because there's a lot of pieces that we're not going to eat, the hide and the head and all that stuff, so internal organs. Um, so take that into consideration. You know, if you're planning on a quarter beef, let's say you raise a steer and you split it with four families total, including yours, um, that's not even 150 pounds of beef per family, which to me is not very much. I always look, now I'm, I have a skewed perception, I, I admit, because <laughs> I'm used to seeing a lot of beef in one place at one time. When I see a quarter of a beef in a box, like all the packages wrapped up, I'm like, oh, that's not very much. Now, to some people, that is an astronomical amount. So it just kind of depends on how much meat you eat a week, how many people are in your family, and all of that. Um, but those are the numbers that you can roughly plan on getting when you're raising a steer. So as far as costs go, let's say you're raising your one steer a year, um, you're going to be needing to buy the calf which depending on when you purchase a calf, that can be a couple hundred bucks, 500 bucks, kind of in that range, depending on how old they are. You need to purchase feed. So potentially bales of hay. You know, if you have a lot of pasture, you might have that part taken care of. Otherwise, you're going to have to buy hay, good grass hay or alfalfa to feed them, to get them through the cold months. And then uh, processing fees would be your other big expense. But even with those fees added up, when you break it down to how much you're paying per pound, it's still a big savings, right? So it's absolutely worth it. And again, not a whole lot of work to get that done. If you're butchering yourself, obviously that takes a little more effort. We have butchered ourselves in the past. The reason we now hire our beef or we pay someone else to butcher is just, like I said at the beginning, it's that hanging time where it's so much better if you let the beef hang 14 to 21 days. It just is vastly superior. And you need a big walk-in cooler to do that, and we do not have that. And sometimes, if you're super, super lucky, you'll have a perfect uh, stretch of weather where you can hang the sides of beef in a shop, you know, an unheated garage. But for us, like, we get temperature swings. Like, a couple weeks ago, it was 20 below, and it was 60 yesterday. And that doesn't work for hanging beef because it'll start to spoil. And if you try to hang it in the summer, um, for too long, you can get the bugs and the flies. So that's why we hire that out, but it's perfectly feasible for, for you to butcher your own, as long as you have the right saws and a tractor to hoist the carcass up to skin it and all of that. So just things to consider. Okay. 
Let's keep on moving here. Chicken, raising a year's worth of chicken. So this is a great option if you aren't quite ready for the large animals that's still a little intimidating. Start with a chicken because you could raise meat chickens in your backyard. Um, and that is very doable for a lot of folks. We figure about a chicken a week. Now you may eat more chicken, you may eat less chicken, but for us, you know, I try to roast a whole chicken once a week or so. And then I have the bones to make broth and I have a, probably two meals worth of meat off a decent sized chicken, which means we raise between 50 and 60 meat chickens per year. Now, we like to do those generally in two batches. I know a lot of people will do that amount all in one fell swoop. They just get all the chicks at once and then butcher them all at once. So it's kind of up to you and how much room you have. We like, and I've done other podcast episodes on this, but we prefer the Cornish cross breed, at least at this point in time, because they're a little faster growing, which means they take less feed input and they end up ultimately costing a little less per chicken. Cornish cross are not GMO mod or they're not genetically modified. They're a hybrid, which I have no issue with hybrids. Some people really hate the Cornish cross because um, they've been bred for meat. So they're a lot of their instincts of like uh, foraging and pecking are not great. And they literally are been bred over the years, not genetically modified, just selectively bred to sit at the feeder and eat food. And they're like little piggies. So some people are grossed out by that. It doesn't bother me. I think the meat tastes fine. Um, last year, we actually put them out in our garden at the end of the garden season, and they learned how to forage. Not as aggressively as our laying uh, hens, but they did pretty good. They were hopping up in the raised beds, and they mowed through a bunch of old plants. So I, I think they're great. Um, you could also try just raising a dual-purpose breed of chicken, like the one that can lay and one that has a decent amount of meat where you're keeping the hens for your eggs and you're eating the rooster. So that's another option if you don't want to go super pigeonholed into the meat breed specifically. We have raised our meat chickens um, in the chicken coop in the past and I really dislike that because our chicken coop isn't huge and they just destroy it. It just gets disgusting. Like no, It feels like no matter how much we clean it, they literally just eat and poop all day long, like all day long and sit there in it. And so it just gets gross really, really fast. And I hate, like, I don't like growing them in a place that's, that's stinky. I'm like, this is no better than what, how they would be raised in a commercial chicken, you know, confined animal feeding operation. So Last year, we experimented with putting them in the chicken tractors and trying to move them around the yard out of the way of the dogs because Jed, our puppy, will massacre a chicken like nobody's business. But the chicken tractor in, in our fenced garden, and I think their growth was better. The meat was better. Everything was better. So our new resolution with the meat birds is no more chicken coop uh, raising, but they're going to be outside somewhere. Uh, as long as the weather is not too cold. And I think that's going to be a much better fit. So if you have a chicken tractor, you have a mobile chicken coop, I would say that's a fantastic option for your meat birds. Or you could do some of that poultry netting that's electric, you know, that you move move them around a yard or a pasture. As long as you don't have dogs like Jed, 
who will jump over the fence or do ridiculous things, that's a great option as well. Um, to feed your meat chickens, we, we do use a commercial meat bird food. I haven't been able to find a formulation that's a little more homemade or DIY that I'm happy with yet. We have very limited, well, we have feed stores here, but we don't ha have a lot of feed stores who like to get creative with custom mixes. There's a, there's one or two, but most of them are just selling like bags of Purina or whatever brand. So I have really struggled. I get a little jealous sometimes when I hear people talk about, well, I, I have this local feed mill who uses local grains and they make me a local mix for my birds. And I'm like, oh, I wish I had that. But we don't have quite those options at this point. So we feed a commercial laying feed uh, and lots of chicken scraps. And if I have leftover milk uh, I, or clabber, I will feed them that. So we try to offset the cost that way. But for us in that short period of time, I mean, you're only going to have meat birds for eight to 10 weeks, maybe 12 weeks. If you're using a slower growing bird, we just buy the feed and we try to buy it in bulk, um, saves us a little money. And that's what we found works best for us, at least for now. Now processing the chickens, you could, you can easily process them yourself. I feel like it's much simpler to process chickens than a beef for obvious reasons. You don't have to let them hang. Uh, for 21 days, that would be weird. And you can do it in your backyard or you can do it in your garage. We, um, let's see, what do we have? I, I've shown videos of our setup in the past on YouTube. So you can go check out my YouTube channel and see like the visual of the process because it's kind of hard to explain all of this on a podcast. We have a killing cone, um, which is a, I feel like is a more humane way to dispatch a chicken. There we use a, we just got actually a, electric chicken plucker, which is the most amazing thing ever invented in the entire world because plucking a chicken isn't hard. It's just kind of tedious sometimes. So you literally scald the chicken in some hot water and you put it in the plucker. The feathers are off in like 10 seconds. And then we eviscerate the chicken. We put them in shrink wrap bags after they have a chance to cool in ice and an ice bath. And it works really good. And we, like I said, we do two big batches a year that gives us enough chicken for an entire year. And it's not just not that hard. Like it really isn't. I feel like most people could handle raising chickens with no problem. And I know there's sometimes the squeamishness over butchering animals you've raised. I totally get that. I totally respect that, but it's something to consider. It's a great protein source. You don't have to have acres. You don't have to have tractors to move hay bales. Um, so that's a great, great option. All right, holy moly, we're, we are going long, but I'm going to keep on trucking because I feel like this topic is a really important one. So here we go. Bear with me. This is good stuff. Pigs. Let's talk about pigs. Um, pigs, I don't have quite the level of comfort in pig raising that I do with the cattle and the chickens because I've struggled, I feel like, in the past over knowing, is this my pin situation? Is this what I really want? Is my feed situation what I really want? Now, that being said, we've had some great successful pig harvests, if you will. Last year, we actually raised six pigs because, uh, you know, it was during the height of, well, I don't know, height, I guess the, this whole pandemic thing's lasted a lot longer than we all thought. But the initial frenzy, <laughs> the initial COVID frenzy, you know, March, April of 2020, 
that's when piglets are available and there was no pork at the store and there was no bacon anywhere. And I'm like, we are going to fix this problem. So I found a breeder with a bunch of piglets and I convinced all of our friends to each go in on a piglet. <laughs> so we got six of them and we raised them here on the homestead. The meat has been fantastic. Um, so we kept two, no, sorry. We kept one and a half for ourselves and the other five and a half, no, four and a half, sorry, math, math is hard. The other four and a half, my friends, our friends took either a whole pig or they split a pig between them. And it was awesome. They brought over kitchen scraps. So I'm like, okay, guys, here's the deal. We'll raise them. You know, everyone pitches in on the feed costs and they buy their own piglet, but bring over all your food scraps. So we had friends dropping off watermelon rinds and big buckets of who knows what all summer long to feed these pigs. We gave them leftover milk, um, all the scraps you can imagine. It was, it was pretty easy. We do keep our pigs in a pin, a large pin with a shade. Shade's really important. And Christian, the other thing we kind of figured out this year, we've always had pans of water and you can just imagine pigs, pans of water, mud, mess. Ugh. Um, he kind of built this custom pig nipple <laughs> setup So it would attach onto a hydrant and then it's, a pipe with six or no, maybe like four, four pig nipples. And then it's kind of like a, you know, hamster bottles, how that works sort of, it's sort of that vibe. So the, the hydrant stays on and the pigs can go drink off the nipple and it's just easier and a little less messy. I mean, they still figured out how to make a mud hole out of it, but we didn't have to constantly be filling up water and constantly dumping out muddy pans. So that worked out really good. Um, I have the shade. I said that and oh, pasturing pigs. Let's talk about this for a second. What a beautiful concept. I truly love the idea of pasturing a pig. Pastured pork has a nice ring to it. Someday, perhaps, I will figure out how to crack the code of pastured pigs. And I watch videos from people like Joel Salatin, and he has this amazing pastoral pig setup. I love it. Here is my reality. <laughs> it doesn't work so hot. And I don't know, okay, for me, I know it works for other people. It doesn't work so hot for me. People are always like, oh, do you have pastured pork with your pastured beef? And I'm like, no, I sure don't. Because I feel like prairies and pigs are not made for each other. I feel like pigs are made for forests. And if you have woodland and tree patches and little creeks and underbrush, I feel like that is the perfect pastured pig setup. When I put pigs out on my pasture, number one, it's hard to contain them. But even if you can contain them, they will make short work of a beautiful piece of grass. Like they don't graze, they dig. So if you want your grass pasture rototilled, it's fantastic. If you want them to not destroy it, it's not so hot. So that is why I raise them in a pin. Again, I love pastured pig, the thought of it, but it hasn't worked thus far. Someday, maybe I will have a homestead with some wood woods or trees or something. And that would be awesome. And I can move the pigs around and they can root through the underbrush and find the acorns. But I have no acorns, zero acorns as of right now. Now I was talking to some folks on my homegrown coaching call the other day, which is my little homestead mentorship program. And they have Cooney Coonies. And they said that those actually lend themselves much better to pasturing because of the way their noses are kind of turned up differently. So they actually will eat the grass, not destroy the grass. So that's something I I'm interested in. Maybe we'll look at that in the future or some of these heritage breeds of pigs. Perhaps they are not as destructive, but I just have to tell you that I just need to be very upfront. 
on the realities of a pastured pig. So if you have different experiences or you have tips, I would love to hear them. Send them my way because I'm fascinated at the idea if someone has figured out how to make your typical run-of-the-mill pig work on a typical run-of-the-mill pasture. All right, enough of that. Sorry if that was my soapbox there, but I'm very passionate about that topic. It's been very frustrating to me. Uh, Sometimes, you know, homestead books or homestead blogs or homestead whatever, and you're like, y'all are, it feels like it's very idealistic. And I'm like, has anyone actually tried this before you wrote a book about it? I mean, I'm I'm not trying to be mean or anything because I know a lot, there's some great books and great things, but sometimes I'm like, I don't feel like this is going to work like you think it is. Anyway, I will stop with that whole thing. Anyway, okay, amount of pork. What can you expect? So you're going to probably process your pigs when they're 250 to 270 pounds. If you go beyond that, they just start to get out a bunch of fat and it's not as efficient, right? You're going to be paying for feed and the meats, you're not going to have as much meat. So 270, I think, is about when we usually take ours in. We have butchered our own pigs in the past. It can work. It's a little easier than uh, a cow. And we actually considered having a butchering party last year with these six pigs and doing them all in a big group because it's kind of fun. You have all the neighbors over and you all work together. We ultimately, just looking at our schedule and everything, we decided to just have them go to the butcher. But you could process them yourself. They don't have to hang like beef does. So you can expect to get back about 55% of your pig in edible cuts. So if you take your pig in at 270 pounds, you can expect to get back about 150 pounds of meat. Um, again, not to me, that's not a ton because I have, I guess I, you know, have different perceptions, like I said, of what is a lot, what is not. So we usually, when we're going to raise a pig, we usually raise two pigs. And I've generally only done, I do two pigs every other year. So we don't do it every year. And I like to have two at a time. They do better having two pigs, you don't, a single pig, they just struggle a little bit more. They don't eat as well. They like the competition. They like to to have a friend. So I feel like it's kinder to the animal to have at least two. So we do two pigs every other year generally, and that's worked out well for us. We don't eat as much pork as we do beef. Um, I, when I send my pig to the processor, get your typical cuts, the roasts and the shoulder roasts and the, um, loins and the pork pork chops. And I like to cure generally my own hams. So I just ask for a fresh ham. So they'll give me the whole leg without it being cured. Just that way I have more control over what's going in there and make sure there's not the junk and stuff. I have a recipe for the cured ham. For those of you who have the Heritage Cooking Crash Course, that's my favorite recipe and it works really good. So that's what I use. I've ended up with some monster hams, like 30 like five pound hams, which are a little tricky to wrestle in and out of the oven, but still very good. I also will get uh, uncured pork belly. So I just ask the butcher to give me the whole belly. Do not like, don't have them slice it. Say, please do not slice it. And then you can cure that. And I have a recipe for that in my cookbook. I have a recipe for that in the crash course of very simple with black pepper and maple syrup and things to cure that and then make your own bacon. It's out of this world. So good. Um, but yeah, pigs are pretty simple and I think they're a great option. Oh, we do give, did I say we do give pig feed? We do feed a commercial pig feed along with the milk and the kitchen scraps because they do need that protein, right. To, to grow efficiently. So we do get that. We got it in big totes from a feed mill that wouldn't custom mix it for us. 
and it was a little cheaper. So I just throwing that in there in case I missed it. All right. What else? What are our other options? Well, there's goats. You can do meat goats. You can do sheep. You can do rabbits. Um, we personally don't raise the goats or sheep for meat. We have dairy goats, but I'm just, it's just my own weird thing. I just don't really care to butcher and eat goats. You can, it's great meat. I know a lot of people do nothing wrong with it. It's just the path we've taken. Same goes for rabbits. I think rabbits, if you live in a small, on a small homestead, or you live in a place with just a big backyard, you don't have an actual acreage. Rabbits, as we know, proliferate quickly. <laughs> so you can get a lot of meat rabbits in a short amount of time. I'm kind of in that vibe of the meat chickens. They're a smaller animal. They're going to be easier to grow, a little less startup expense. So that's something to consider. And maybe in the future, we can have some guests on who can give us more rabbit info or goat info or sheep info. But I am not your girl to get into a super deep dive with those just because I haven't done it personally. All right, what else can you do? Let's say you've been listening to this episode and you're like, okay, Jill, cool. But I, I'm living in town. I have an HOA that says I can't have chickens. I can't have rabbits. What do I do? So here are some ideas for you as I as we wrap up this episode. Um, the biggest thing that I think is the very best option if you're in that situation is find your local farmers. And you've heard me talk about this before, and I'm saying it again. Figure out who they are, get to know them, and support them. Um, there's nothing wrong if you can't grow your own. It, just support someone else who's doing that. You know, sometimes it's you're just finding other homestead friends who maybe are going to, they could raise an extra steer and you could pay them to do that. Or you could buy half a steer from them, or you could go in on meat chickens together, kind of like we did with our friends last year. Sometimes you're going to find an actual producer who's been producing meat for a while or, or producing farm goods for a while, and you can get to know them and their operation and get on their schedule or get in their, their CSA box or something like that. Um, here's the deal. When you're buying meat locally from a farmer, especially if that farmer is, you know, growing maybe with organic style practices or those more holistic methods, expect to pay more. It's okay to pay more. And here's the deal. The meat at Walmart, the tubes of beef at Walmart are cheap for a reason. And I know it's sometimes hard to walk by the, the tubes of meat and then instead go pay a few bucks more from a farmer. But trust me, it is so, so worth it. The meat is superior. Like, you don't even know what's in those tubes at the grocery store, guys. Those cheap tubes, you don't even know. Like, it's not good. Um, and the quality is better. Go do some research on the difference between grass-fed and grass-finished versus corn fed, see what you think, make up, come to your own conclusions there. I feel like for me, it's worth it. Absolutely. To pay extra. If I'm buying beef, I'm going to buy the grass fed for the health benefits that I think are important for me and my family. That's worth a couple extra bucks. You know, at least here in our part of the world last year, when the, the meat shortages happened, nobody could find meat in the stores and everybody was scrambling on Facebook and Craigslist to find meat locally. So you wouldn't believe the posts 
help, I need beef, help, I need beef, help me find beef, help me find a rancher. And kind of the sad part is a lot of those folks, as soon as, you know, the ranchers saved their day, right? There was people making cool connections all over Facebook and selling beef and hooking people up with resources and farmers and ranchers. And then as soon as the Walmart beef came back in stock, everybody ran right back to Walmart. Um, And some people stayed with the farmers and ranchers, but, you know, be loyal to those local producers because they're the ones who are going to stick with you. And those are the ones who aren't going to be as susceptible when, if there is supply chain issues or if the system has a breakage point. So I'm just encouraging to encouraging you to find a producer, commit to that producer and don't be afraid. If you have to, to adjust some of your other grocery budgets, you can buy higher quality meat. I feel like that is absolutely worth it in flavor and in the health benefits that's going to come. And you know, like Joel Salatin talks about, and this might be woo-woo for some, but I totally agree with this. There's an, an energy or there's something about an animal that was raised where its whole life was raised in misery versus an animal that was raised with a happy life the way an animal's supposed to be raised. And I know there's some people who will hear me say that and go, yeah, but you still you're eating the animal and it still had a horrible end. And I, you know, there's a lot of thoughts and I don't necessarily agree with all of that. You're allowed to have your own opinions on that. And that's cool. If you don't want to eat meat, I have complete respect for that. No hard feelings, but I would rather be raising animals and consuming animals that were allowed to live to the fullness of what they're supposed to be versus one that was raised in different environments. So that to me is worth paying a little extra. If I'm going to buy meat, I'm going to pay a little extra for that. Um, if you are buying, you can go in bulk, get that freezer, buy in quarters, buy in halves, buy a whole, it's going to save you money almost always. So I would seek those options out if at all possible, if you can swing it. Um, and it's just one step, even if you don't have a homestead and you're just buying from local producers instead, breaking up with a grocery store, one step closer to knowing where all your food comes from, even if you're not growing it all yourself, that's cool. But just one step closer to having more food security and also supporting your local food culture in the process. So it's a really, really good thing. And with that, I'm going to leave you because this was a very long episode. This might be just about the longest solo episode I've ever done. I probably should have broken it up into a couple, but I hope you enjoyed it. This was super fun to talk about. Um, I love talking about good meat, raising meat. And and something else I forgot to mention earlier, we are really close. I know I've been saying this for a while, but turns out this has been very formidable for us. But we are very close to being able to ship our grass-fed, grass-finished beef. Christian ordered insulation this week. We The reason this has taken us so long is we have the freezer of beef. It's ready to roll. It's packaged. It's beautiful. It's amazing. We've been selling it locally. Uh, boxes and insulation and figuring out dry ice and shipping methods so beef can get to you without defrosting, right, is a big deal. It's been really hard to figure out. Like, I can't believe how hard it's been. So, we have found good boxes. We have found finally good insulation. We have figured out a dry ice uh, source. We have figured out uh, how to get UPS to ship in a way that's going to make sense for all parties involved. So we are super close to shipping our beef. So you technically could have some of our homestead beef on your table. If you are interested in getting the first announcement or 
the first news when that is officially ready. I'm going to drop a link to our wait list in the comments. Um, and I will be sending out notification to that little list before we open it up to anyone else. So should be good. We're super excited. It's just taken us a lot longer than we thought to get to this point, but we want our beef to be able to get to you without melting, you know, for obvious reasons. So whew, thanks for listening, guys. <laughs> thanks for sticking with me on this episode. Next episode, I am thrilled to have a very special guest, Kate from Venison for Dinner, and we're going to talk about milk cows and chicken systems and hatching and eggs, and it's going to be good. So make sure you come back for that one. In the meantime, if you want to keep up with me over on Instagram, check, check out my profile at the Prairie Homestead. I post over there quite a bit. And uh, yeah, have a wonderful rest of your day, and we'll talk soon on the next episode of the Old Fashioned On Purpose podcast. <music>